You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, uh, the time of the evening where you join us on uh, Medical Files. And uh, this evening uh, we have uh, a clinical psychologist, uh, Michael Theron. And I'll tell you, I'm looking forward uh, to this uh, conversation because uh, with what we are, you know, confronted by so many things coming through, uh, people are succumbing to depression, some are, you know, many are becoming suicidal, and all this thing goes through your mind, and, you know, you wonder, how do you cope up? But, uh, you know, we have uh, specialists in the field, and one of them is our very own uh, this evening, Michael Tehran, clinical psychologist. Uh, good evening, and thank you very much for joining us on the platform of Amatka Sahaba, the voice of the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'a, Michael. Oh no, thank you very much for having me, Shafat. Oh, very good to have you and I tell you, perhaps you know when people uh, listen to this, hey, but Shafat, what is the difference uh, between a clinical psychologist and a psychologist? Um, well, basically it's, there, there's just a bit of a difference in the, in the training and then the registration with the Health Professions Council. Um, so you get different categories of psychologists. You get clinical counseling, forensic, um, and then, of course, you get the neuropsychologist and the educational psychologist, and you get an industrial psychologist. So there's just different categories of psychologists who have specialized in, in, different, in different areas. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as you said, specializing in uh, different areas. And uh, in your case, uh, Michael, you know, perhaps the question to ask you is uh, quite a personal one. What got you interested into psychology or uh, being a clinical psychologist? <laughs> wow. Okay. Let, let's just go for the big guns. Um, I, was, I was originally in, 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 in the fashion industry. Um, and then at the tender age of 35, decided that I wanted a career change. And so decided to pursue my passion, and that was clinical psychology. I tell you, uh, there's nothing unique about that, because I also made a career change. I was a journalist. I mean, I'm still a journalist, but journalist, you know, the paper, uh, yeah. being editor of a magazine. And suddenly, Michael, I decided to go into broadcasting. And that's my life now. I mean, I got into it at a late age, but uh, now people call me a veteran in on, on, <laughs> on, on the airwaves. I'm, I'm sure that's the same case with you. And, you know, talking about, uh, uh, you know, what exactly do you do? Tell us exactly what does a clinical psychologist uh, does? Well, there's, there's various aspects to to the work that we do, and we, we work in a variety of settings. So the setting will very much determine the kind of work that you do. But in essence, we work uh, very closely with with the psychiatrists in the in the medical setting, and. Um, so part of part of our role is assessment and uh, case conceptualization, and then of course working with the with the clients and and helping them to get through whatever it is that they are presenting with. So whether it's depression or anxiety or bipolar or just getting stuck somewhere in their lives, you know, we we deal with a variety of disorders and presenting problems. Uh, Michael, how would I know that I 
should be uh, visiting a clinical psycho uh, psychologist or a, a clinical or a counseling psychologist? How would I know who to go to? There's, there really isn't much difference between clinical and, and counseling. Um, it's something that, that's decided by the HPCSA and there's a slight variation in the training um, that at, at university level, at, at master's level. So uh, you, you'll find the clinical psychologists tend to be more in the, in, in the hospital medical settings but there, there really isn't much difference. And I, th I think what it, what it is is to find what is most important is to find somebody that you have a very good rapport with um, because that's, that's what psychotherapy is all about. It's about building rapport and being able and comfortable enough in, within a secure environment to be able to work through whatever it is that's troubling you. Uh, Michael, I've spoken to many GPs before, and I'm uh, of the opinion that the best place to start off perhaps is with your GP who can provide you with, you know, he'll look at you and he'll give a referral to me uh, or a patient uh, to go to a Michael or you must go to a clinical psychologist. Does it work that way? Well, the referrals can come from a multi multitude of sources. So, firstly, you know you don't you don't need a referral to to visit a psychologist. You can you can make that appointment yourself. Um, but the referrals also come from from GPs. They come from other practitioners in the medical field. Um, it can come from your dietitian, for example. It, it, it doesn't have to only come from a doctor or a psychiatrist. Oh, you know, uh, you know, important skills. I'm talking to you, and uh, communication as a broadcaster is an important skill for me to get my message across to the millions of people that listen to us and to individuals. I'm sure it's same in your in in, in your profession. Right? I mean, you you need to have this uh, communication skills, and clearly that will play a. Uh, a, a very important role in your in, in your profession. Also, what else uh, you know uh, adds on to uh, the skills that you need as a clinical psychologist? Well, uh, yes, the communication skills are are, are definitely um, probably the most essential. But it's also it's also about having the capacity to have empathy um, to remain objective. And um, to to communicate and conduct the sessions in a non-judgmental manner, um, the, you know, we, we we need to create a place of safety where people feel comfortable enough to be able to talk through everything that uh, that that's been bothering them. And very often what happens is that people will come to us because they don't feel like they can communicate what is going on with them, with those around them or in their, in their immediate support uh, group, you know. So, yes, the ability to, to listen, to be empathic, um, but also to have a, an understanding of, of human nature and, and what makes us tick as, as human beings is essential. 
Yes, uh, you know, I'm led to believe uh, that a clinical psychologist uh, does not uh, prescribe medications uh, to treat mental illnesses. Rather, uh, you know, you use uh, therapies uh, such as uh, cognitive uh, behavioral uh, therapy, CBT, or REP. Uh, they call it interpersonal therapy, family therapy, insight building, counseling, and uh, psychoanalytic uh, therapy. All these things you do, but you do not prescribe medication. Talk to us no. about that, uh, Michael. So, so in South Africa, it falls outside of the scope of practice for any psychologist to prescribe medication. Um, that you need to you need to be a psychiatrist or you need to be a, a GP. So it is it is not legal for us to prescribe medication. And uh, you know, talking about med school, I'm, uh, I mean, do you go to med school or you just do your studies out of med school, Michael? Uh, Mike, uh, your studies, uh, do you do it out out of uh, med school or do you go to med school? Okay, seems like uh, we've uh, lost Mike again. He's gone on fees uh, uh, mode there, but uh, if, uh, we'll try and get hold of him again. And yeah, uh, problematic lines uh, this evening. But as uh, we're having a, a you know powerful convert, Michael, you back? Yes, I'm back. Okay, we had you on freeze mode there. And it's, it's all, it's, it's, I think it's all part of the Skype. And uh, the question that I was opposing to you was, uh, uh, you don't go to med school. You study out of med school, uh, Mike. Yes, we, we, we study out, out of med school. So you have to do a, an undergraduate, then you do an honors, then you do a master's. Then if you're clinical, you do a year internship, and then you have to do a year community service. And, and those latter years are spent within the, within the medical field. So, so you're in a hospital um, setting or a clinic setting, so we we do get exposure to to the medical field, and obviously we work we work very closely with the psychiatrists. So uh, we do have knowledge, but it's beyond our scope of practice to prescribe. Now, what happens? You know, a person comes uh, to you. This is his first appointment. What should he expect from you, Michael? Well, normally what's going to happen in, a, in, in, in the first appointment is um, that we would, we would do an assessment. So the, the assessment is, is basically to get a history of the, of the person, um, the presenting problem, any treatment that they've received, what's worked for them, what hasn't worked for them. So that we so that we're able to conceptualize the case before any treatment plan is is put together. Yeah, and the important thing is, you know, can you as a clinical psychologist, you know, you get a patient coming, he's talking to you, and uh, you know, can you make out that the person is a pathological liar or he's lying to you, Michael? And how, you know, I don't want to ask you how many liars come to you, but you know, <laughs> in your assessment, can you make that out, Michael? Well, uh, you know, the the thing is, is that you would. You would try, as a, as a psychologist, you would try to understand what the function of that person's lying was about. 
So why do they feel the need to lie? And 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 what is it that it serves for for that person? And then you would try and work with that. Also, you know, you're talking, uh, I mean, the talk is so important. You know, going to a psychologist is more about talking. It's like talk therapy. We're talking to each other. We're having a conversation. And then you, Michael, you have to be a very good listener, if I'm not mistaken. You listen with a lot of patience, and then you make uh, your own analysis. You turn that into your breath. You think about it. How long does it take you to make an informed decision and to give that verdict to your patient? It's, it, it would depend very much on the, on the assessment. So it would depend very much on that, that first interview. Um, but we, we, we avoid jumping to conclusion uh, because that is, that is detrimental and that is potentially harmful to the, to the patient. So you know, we always check in with the patient, make sure that um, our hypothesis or, or, or our thinking about the case is correct. Now, you know, uh, what about, uh, you know, patients today? A lot of them have this anxiety attacks. And, you know, um, perhaps uh, more, uh, I think the moms are more anxious or the uh, more, uh, fall more, um, uh, or are more susceptible to anxiety attack. Am I, uh, am I uh, fair in my assumptions, uh, Michael? Anybody, anybody is prone to anxiety. Um, we're, we're seeing it in, in light of, of all that's been going on um, around us with COVID, etc., that the levels of, of anxiety have risen dramatically across all populations and all age groups and, and, and gender. So it's not specific to, to a particular gender or a um, a particular age group. It, it it can affect anybody at any time. Now, Michael, how do you advise when someone comes to you and you notice a heavy anxiety attack? What do you do? Give us a, a graphic description. What you do, Mike? Well, it's going to it's, it's so, so it's going to depend on um, of an, on a number of factors. So, so firstly, how long have they been experiencing this anxiety? Is it recent, or do they have a, a long history of anxiety? Have they uh, sought out treatment before? Have they been on medication before? What has worked for them, and what hasn't worked for them? So that's all part of the assessment. And then from there, it would be a case of working working with that person to equip them with the tools and, and the skills necessary to be able to manage and mediate that anxiety on a on a daily basis. Uh, Mike, also, you know, uh, we spoke earlier on of uh, liars, and, you know, liars often remove themselves from uh, the story by referring themselves, uh, you know, less uh, by making stories, uh, you know. Uh, you know, when the liars come to you and they keep on talking, what are some of the tell say, uh, telltale signs or some of the words that we should be listening very carefully to them and say, no, this person is uh, definitely fibbing? Michael? 
Well, I'm quite curious around your obsession with uh, liars, but okay. Um, <laughs> you know why? You know why? I listen to the government so often, so I'm so I, I want to know how can they look at your in you in your face and still lie to you. So we have to have that obsession. We've been lied left, right, and centre, Mike. Okay. So normally, what will what will happen is that. Um, you pick up inconsistencies in the in their story, and and when you go back to check um, various details, then that's where you'll normally pick up that, that something's not quite quite right. Also, you know, as as psychologists, we we don't only listen; we we observe. So. We, we know how to how to read body language, and um, normally there are telltale, telltale signs that somebody is uncomfortable or that something is not quite right with with what they what they're saying. You know. Yes. Now, Michael, how do you handle a patient when they come to you and they cry and they burst out crying? How you handle that, Mike? Well. <laughs> You know, unfortunately, unfortunately, that's that's part of the job. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of patients do cry because they've been suppressing or or holding all of this in, and finally, when they get the opportunity to start speaking about it, it becomes very, very overwhelming. And it's it's about respecting that person in that moment. Um, and and acknowledging that, that that this is what they they're feeling and the intensity of that that feeling. Absolutely, and uh, you know, uh, do they tell you everything? You know, they, there you are. They got a uh, confidence in you. They came to you for help. Do they tell you uh, everything, or do you have to you know prize it out of them, uh, Michael? Well, you know the thing is, is that you've you've got to ask the question if if you're going to go if you're going to go to the psychologist and you're going to withhold information and you're not going to tell them the truth, the the person that you're doing a disservice to is yourself. Uh, you know, um, so it's. It, it's always a difficult one, and and often often there will be things in a person's life that they've never spoken about, and they won't readily ad, ad, admit that or reveal it. Um, not until they not until they feel that they can trust you. So, uh, you know, it's not it's not our job as psychologists to second guess our clients. Um, the client tells us the story in their time at the pace that they're comfortable with and with what they're comfortable with sharing. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, what kind of therapy is used, uh, you know, during uh, when a person comes to you, a patient is uh, depressed, uh, what type of therapy you use? Is it, uh, you know, I'm sure you have quite a few sessions to get uh, the person out of depression, uh, Michael. <laughs> It depends. It depends very much on your your training and the and the discipline um, that that you belong to. So, a psychoanalyst will use a different a different approach to somebody who's psychodynamically trained. They'll use a different approach to somebody who's systems trained or 
I, I use a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy in, in, in my practice and, and positive psychology as well as the dialectical behavioral therapy. So the cognitive behavioral therapy has been um, it's an evidence-based uh, approach and is highly effective in the, in the treatment of depression. Yeah, and then you in, look at my the, experience. Oh, yes, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, then you look at the, uh, you know, the, the, the cost factor when visiting a uh, clinical psychologist or, or a uh, psychologist. Uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, how much does a first session cost? Uh, do you, uh, you know, uh, if, if a person is from the middle income and comes to you and says, you know, uh, Michael, I, this is what I can afford. Uh, do you give them a, a sympathetic ear or you like uh, some of the dentist friends I have, they say, okay, you can go down the road and visit that guy and go check him out because I've got laser treatment here, you know. Uh, how do you react, uh, Mike? So our, our rates are determined by the medical aid and the, and the HPCSA. And it's frowned upon for us to to be charging more um, theoretically we shouldn't do it um, some practices do offer a do offer a cash rate which is normally less than than what the the medical aid rate is so it depends on on really what area you're in and um, the sort of like the income group that you're working with and, uh, you know, when uh, someone comes to therapy, uh, for therapy, and it's a young person, uh, are you allowed to tell the parents that, you know, your child has a certain disorder? Okay, so that is one of the, that's one of the things that, that makes psychotherapy um, so, so, so sacred, so to speak, is, is confidentiality. And we are we are bound by by confidentiality. It's the only way that we can truly guarantee um, trust and safety to our to our clients. There are certain um, there are certain conditions with which we're allowed to break confidentiality, but it, it depends on the age of the child and um, and the presenting the presenting problem. There you got it from uh, Mike. It depends on the age of the uh, child and the presenting problem. I'm really enjoying myself with you, Mike. It's actually <laughs> me sitting, uh, uh, you know, you sitting on the couch and I'm doing the... <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm just pulling your leg. I'm really enjoying this session with you. It's time for us to go for, uh, for a break and uh, inshallah we will continue after that. You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. So the program is um, medical talk. Yeah, yeah. We use uh, our psychologist, uh, clinical psychologist, uh, Michael Teron, and really having a very laid back and a comfortable uh, conversation with him. And I hope uh, you're enjoying it. Yes, uh, you, we have uh, some of your questions uh, that are coming through. And uh, let's uh, get the first one. Uh, anonymous says, uh, Mike. Uh, by the way, Mike, are you enjoying yourself this evening? Yes, very much so. Thank you. Ready, I'm enjoying you and uh, uh, really cool, calm and collected. Anonymous says, my son is in the habit of pulling his hair when angry. Should I be concerned? That's a very good observation. Should she be uh, concerned? I don't know how many kids you saw. Hey, I'm angry and he's pulling his hair out, uh, Mike. 
It would it would depend on the on the age of the child. Um, so that that type of that type of behaviour we would expect to see in in much younger children. Um, so it, it is concerning if if the child is is getting older, um, sort of four five upwards. Um, but a little bit younger than that—that's that's just the absolute frustration of that of that temper tantrum. Um, however, the child should be encouraged not to do that. Now, Michael, a very important question here: At what age should you know can we pick up that the child is mentally challenged? At what age? What are what are some of the telltale signs that a parent should look out for? I mean, God forbid, you know that. Uh, parents uh, get a child that is uh, mentally challenged. What age am I? Well, normally you would see um, you would see those those signs very, very early on in the in the child's development. Um, the lack of eye contact, the the inability to to grasp objects, um, difficulty feeding and um, sort of like no emotion regulation, so, so sort of like uncontrollable um, screaming and, and very, very disturbed sleep patterns. But my, 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 my recommendation is, is that if you suspect that this is the case, go and see a medical professional as soon as possible. Do not leave it, uh, because the longer you leave it, you know, the more complicated and difficult it's going to become. And as parents, you're, you're going to need to learn how to manage this child effectively. Uh, looking at this question, Evie says, uh, great show, uh, Chef. Uh, you're really enjoying uh, uh, Michael Teron there. He says... Uh, who are more susceptible uh, to uh, nervous breakdown and uh, mental issues? Uh, uh, are the alcoholics and the substance abusers uh, the main uh, main uh, people that fall prey to this? Uh, something to think about. Alcohol, uh, alcoholics and substance abusers, uh, will they fall into mental issues, uh, Michael? Well, well alcoholism and, and, and substance abuse is a mental issue in and of its own. Um, it is a it is a it is a, a psychiatric. It's classified as a psychiatric disorder. And so, if somebody is an addict or an alcoholic, then then that in and of itself is the mental issue. So we have a nation, uh, statistically uh, one of the biggest imbibers of alcohol. I don't know how many kiloliters a month they drink. So we got a, a whole nation of lunatics, Michael. Mostly. A whole nation of? Uh, uh, lunatics, you know, drinking, a mental issue, uh, drinking a lot of alcohol. Oh. Uh, you, okay, you, you know, you have got to be very careful because um, not everybody who drinks is an alcoholic. Yeah, most not. Yeah. Not not everybody who so so if, if you if you get drunk on a on on a Saturday night at a at a at a party, that doesn't classify you as an alcoholic. 
Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody who drinks has a drinking problem. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, the recent uh, looting that took place, and the first thing that they wiped out was the, yeah, the bottle stores. You noticed that. It was cleaned out. But anyway, let's move on there, Mike, and uh, look at this uh, question from Anonymous Brother. Anonymous says, I was told just to, be, uh, just to keep quiet when my wife has her cycles. Mum's advice. Your thoughts. Okay, brother's getting into issues and the wife is having a, a monthly that you should be quiet. Your thoughts, sir, Michael? Well, you know, this is, this is something that, that should be discussed. Uh, it's because, uh, because if, if the behavior is, is completely irrational and, and disruptive, um, then uh, this, this particular person should actually seek medical advice for that. Um, but it also takes understanding from us men because we don't we don't know what it's like to go through that. So this this is a this is one of those things that really should be should be spoken about and and should be should be discussed. Absolutely, and it's a, okay. And as a Michael says, it's a private issue, and if it does. You go to Michael, people, and he will discuss that with you. Yeah, we'll drink a couple there. <laughs> it can be done on on, on, on international radio. Yeah, there's a time and place for that, Michael. Uh, Amit says, uh, why is there such a high spike in suicide rates? What are some of the telltale signs that a person is about to commit suicide? A very telling question there, Mike. Uh, perhaps uh, your thoughts? Sorry, you, you were breaking up, so it was very difficult for me to hear. Could you just repeat it, please? Okay, I'll do that again. Uh, Ahmed says, why is there such a high spike in suicide rates? What are some of the telltale signs? You got that, Mike? Okay, so COVID... COVID has had a, a detrimental effect on people's mental health. And we underestimate what these lockdowns and, and, and what COVID has done to the mental health of, of the nation. And one of the things that, that, that has happened is that people's, people's resilience and and their grit has has been eroded over time. And people have lost businesses. People have lost incomes. Um, marriages are breaking up. And people's lives are, are generally falling apart. And and so for some people, they they believe that the only solution is, is to commit suicide. Um, and... So the telltale signs would be if somebody if somebody starts to isolate more and more, um, if they start withdrawing from their their support circle, and um, uh, you know if if there's a if there's a change in their behaviour that that is out of character for them, those are signs that that we should all be on the lookout for. Um, because those are sometimes indications that uh, 
people are are in a very very bad way and desperately need help and a lot of the times what happens with suicide is is that those those people just they they don't feel like they can talk about it and so we need to make it okay to talk about mental health in south africa because it is a very real problem you know uh, mike that's a question to ask is uh, you know children uh, perhaps the parents are not showing them too much of a tlc or perhaps uh, you know when there's an issue or there's a problem um, you know the important uh, the go to person uh, uh, you know, the, I, the, the question I want to ask you, how important a role does a priest or a pastor or an elder of a society plays in the role, uh, you know, in, in the mind of a young person as a role model? And uh, when they come to you, is that the last resort when they come to Michael Teron for therapy? No, it's it's not necessarily it's not necessarily the, the last resort. Um, people people come and visit psychologists at at various stages uh it doesn't mean that you you only visit the psychologist when you're at the end of the road um so yes i think the elders play a very important role as as do the priests and everybody everybody else that you mentioned um this is a if if i may this this really is a time for for us to be reaching out to as many resources as possible to help us cope because one of the one of the big factors in in good mental health is connectedness and so to be it so to be connecting with the community and to be connecting with with people with experience who might be able to help you i think that's a fantastic thing absolutely and you know uh, the the ubuntu having uh, the uh, oneness you know uh, looking at uh, our our country you know when uh, madiba was there he gave us the sense of uh, being part of a rainbow nation it gave us a sense like you know we were united we won the uh, rugby world cup and so yes, forth yeah. you know that, that that added uh, to our mood and the buoyancy of the country and uh, suddenly you know everything uh, went pear shape and uh, recently we had the appointment of the cabinet and uh, you know many i talked to a lot of uh, political analysts and we've seen uh, that the color change and it's pre- uh, dominantly more the indigenous people that are put into cabinet uh, perhaps sending a mixed signal to uh, other race groups in the country for example the whites the indians and the colors that you know there's not too many of them in the cabinet how does that impact on us psychologically as those that are the minorities now am i sure i don't i don't really know how to how to answer that question um i think it's going to i think it's going to impact people in in different ways and um you know we we need to build the community it it's up to us to build the community if we if we are if we're relying solely on on our leaders to do it then there's no sense of community that's going to be built community is built by the community absolutely it's a community and i think we need to uh, move on and uh, perhaps uh, you know uh, positivity the importance of uh, being a positive individual you know even when you're surrounded by negativity you can overcome that uh, mike 
Sorry, how do we overcome negativity? Yeah, you know, if you're a positive person, and if you are even surrounded by negativity, you can overcome that because of your positive vibe that you create, and perhaps you can, you know, take that out of you, uh, take uh, clear the way. You know, I'm talking as a person uh, that is positive, that meets people that have negativity in them, but you can overcome them with your positivity, Mike. You know, there's a lot of things that we need to be doing, um, and I think I think now more than ever. Um, our, our mental health should be on near the top of, or if, or at the very top of our list of of priorities. Because if 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 mentally we're not in a good space, it's going to have a ripple effect in all areas of our life. Um, and, and, and COVID has stripped a lot of that away for us. And so, to 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 be in a to be in a positive. Uh, mindset it's going to take work it's not going to just happen one day and there there are numerous things that we can be that that we can do so to be in a good routine to to connect with others in the community to help other people go for walks spend time in nature exercise meditate read pray play with your animals uh, your pets uh, play with your children we've got to create that momentum of positive experiences in order to have a positive mindset yeah i agree with you because i've got two cats i've got a siamese i got a tabby I've got roosters, I've got hens. I tell you, Mike, you know, uh, I do a breakfast show every morning. So after my show, I go to the coop, clean it out, and actually talk to my roosters and feed them. I tell you, you're absolutely right. It's so therapeutic to just go and spend time with nature and with these animals. And even you get your cat coming and purring, and, you know, it lies next to you in the evening. Uh, I mean, you, 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 I think you're spot on. And uh, how important is it to give a kid a pet, as you know, to, to, to empower them or to make them feel, you know, what there's a, a responsibility for you, and you know, they'll have that reciprocal love for the pet. Your thoughts on that, Mike? Well, you know, to have a, to have a pet in the household is, is is absolutely fantastic, providing the household can accommodate the pet. Point number one. Point number two, to to just buy an animal uh, or a, or a pet to to please your child and then um, not teach that child how to look after that pet that is cruel to the child and to the pet so so buying a pet shouldn't just be an off the cuff decision and oh look how cute the puppy is that puppy's going to grow into a dog that dog needs care it needs maintenance and so it becomes the responsibility of the household and, and of the child, you know. So there's a lot more that goes into, into just buying a pretty puppy. Um, yeah, I get you. And, uh, the best pet, people, if you less care and you're he's a wet pet, get a fish tank and just put your wet pet in there. I don't know, did you ever own an aquarium, uh, Mike? 
No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> That's why I live in Durban, because there's a very big one just down the road. <laughs> yeah, right near the, yeah, there's a big one. Then the Indian Ocean is your, yes. is your yeah, you can dive That's into my that. aquarium, yeah. Oh, brilliant, brilliant indeed. <laughs> Did you have any sardines this year? I mean, there's so many coming through, and we still didn't get the big run. Did you have your fair share of sardines? No, I actually haven't. Uh, so, yeah, I missed out, I'm afraid to say. Okay, I must tell your good friend, Mr. Parukh, that you missed out on the sardines. Uh, <laughs> uh, concerned the sister says, uh, can our psychologist advise us on how to handle an OCD individual, and is it important to have them medicated? Very important question, uh, Michael. Look, you, you, you're, going, you're going to definitely get different schools of thought. And some people are very pro-medication and some people are very anti-medication. I think that what's important is you've got to gauge the severity of the OCD and how debilitating it is on the person's life. Um, and that decision should be made but with the with the psychiatrist uh, who is, is is doing the prescribing of the of the medication but it's important for the support group to to receive proper education psychoeducation on on how to help that person get through the OCD so yes your your psychologist should be able to to discuss various ways that you as the support group could help that person with OCD. Thank you for that, uh, Mike. Uh, Rafik says, uh, can mental issues be inherited from the family tree where the great-grandfather was uh, documented as someone who was uh, uh, admitted to the uh, psychiatry, uh, psychiatry ward on a number of occasions? Uh, your response, uh, Mike? There, there are certain there are certain disorders where there is a, a genetic predisposition, but this doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to manifest. Um, so, just just because the the, the grandfather um, had a history of mental illness doesn't necessarily mean that it would present in 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 future generations. That uh, people not to be concerned just because grandpa had that issue, you won't have it. Okay, uh, strong mind there. Salim says, Can hypnosis uh, help someone suffering from depression? Uh, interesting question. You know, once, once again, there are, uh, there are different schools of thought, and there are, there are people who who are hypnotherapists, who are, who are certified and qualified hypnotherapists, who would definitely be able to, to help. And then there are people who don't necessarily believe in hypnotherapy. I, I go back to a comment I made at the beginning where I said one of the most important factors for psychotherapy is the rapport that you have with your therapist. So if you find a good hypnotherapist that, that you have a very good rapport with, then then go for it. Why not? If if you believe it's going to help you, then that's what's that's what's important. 
message from an honest, uh, attentive brother says, uh, I'm enjoying the program, uh, Shafat and uh, Michael. He says, is it true that there is an uh, old adage that insanity is uh, a fine line between a genius and madness? Uh, I, I, I heard something like that. How true is that? Attentive brother is uh, wanting us to comment on it. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry that I'm laughing. There, but no, there, are, there are numerous, <laughs> there are numerous statements which are, which yeah. are very. Good. The one that I, the one that I like the most is insanity. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Um. You know, it, it, it would depend on how you define insanity. What, what do you mean by insanity? And, and what, what do you mean by madness? Um, you know, is it, are, you, are you wanting more of a clinical description of, of those? Or, uh, so it would depend. But, uh, you know, it's difficult, to, it's difficult to say whether a person's intellect defines or determines their level of sanity. Um, I think that that's quite a difficult question to answer, to tell you the truth. Yeah, yeah well, guys, uh, you know, our, our listeners this evening are really uh, throwing some curveballs at us. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I admire not... them for that. They've got me on my toes. No, no, they're brilliant. Uh, uh, you know, that's why I like them. I like them because uh, they ask questions that will really got us thinking. And uh, I'm glad I had you chuckling there, Michael. And, you know, really add, uh, added to a beautiful evening. Uh, Abzil says, uh, can strong perfumes trigger people who suffer from mental issues? Another good question. You know, hey, yeah, the guy comes with the best oud from Arabia and it hits you. And then next moment your head is spinning. Hey, you're giving me a migraine. Uh, Michael, how do you react? <laughs> Look, I don't, I don't think that, that's, that that is possible. The only time that that might occur is if, um, if the person is, is perhaps um, having uh, hallucinations or if the person has got uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and um, that particular scent was related to the trauma. That, that could that could trigger an episode. So uh, clinically, no. Um, it would depend on the the person's pre-existing mental condition. Now you remember Macbeth? I'm sure you did that Shakespeare. Yeah. Said all the perfumes in Arabia would not wash off these blood stains from my hands. Yeah. You remember that? So uh, hey, how would you have given him therapy? <laughs> I don't know. I think I might have gone to Macbeth for therapy. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, you can see bad uh, uh, time. You know, you all go through different cycles, and you look at that. Um, you know, we are all made of a different uh, thoughts, different uh, you know language to speak to. But you know, uh, to stay on the straight and narrow, I think it's, it's important for us to. Uh, Respect each other, Michael. What would you say? Respect begets respect. Respect is respect is very very important, and especially now more than ever, we need to we need to respect and each other, and we need to also understand that that a lot of people are struggling, a lot of people are battling, 
And um, it doesn't help if we, if we go to this world with anger and contempt for others because we don't know what that person has been through. And so the very least we can do is just show respect wherever we can. Respect and kindness. Yeah, absolutely. Respect, kindness. And generally, you know, if your neighbor is uh, in a bad way and you know, uh, you know, out of their pride, uh, you know, they got their dignity. They wouldn't come and ask you, uh, Michael. But, you know, the right thing to do is to go and help them. How would you go and, you know, you know your neighbor needs the help. How would you give them uh, help in a very dignified manner? You know, if you're, even if it means taking hamper or, you know, or giving them some money. How would you do it, Michael? You know, for me, for me, it's 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 about doing it anonymously um, as a way of preserving their dignity and and their pride. So, I would, for example, just leave a hamper at their front door, and and leave it at that. Not taking that selfie like. No, I mean, that's disrespectful. No, no, no. Let's uh, let's be uh, let's do an, an analysis here, a clinical analysis on that individual. Says he's take, he's doing a powerful good deed, but he must have his camera there. So what are you doing it for? Analyze that, Mike. Uh, Mike. Well, you know, for for some people, it's to serve their own ego. But for, for other people, it might be to motivate others to do the same thing. So you've always got to, you've always got to take into consideration people's intention um, as, and, and their motive for doing it. You know, I like that answer. You know, I'm not calling you a spin doctor, but that was a brilliant answer. You, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, 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 you do well in politics. Uh, Mike, you know, it was an absolutely brilliant evening with you. Uh, you know, tell us the uh, details of where you're based and uh, when can I come and visit you? Give me your address, uh, Michael. Okay. So I am I'm based in Amstranga Ridge. Um, if you if you want the if you want the the physical address or the the telephone number of my receptionist, yeah, give it to um, to uh, so. What I think is best is if you go to my website, which is 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 Michael Michael Teron Michael John Teron clinical psychologist, or um, mjteron.com, and all of the information is there for you. Mjteron.com. Yeah. Mj, you know what I thought of, eh? Mj, Michael <laughs> Jackson. Michael, your yes. parting words this evening. I, I beg your pardon. Your parting, your parting words uh, this evening. Well, I'm very, I'm very grateful that I, I had this opportunity to, to, to speak, and, and really, as I say, let's, let's encourage each other to talk. And let's not push mental health under the carpet. It's a very real issue. And the more transparent and open we are about it, the better we able, we, we're going to be able to help heal this nation. Thank you very much, uh, Michael Theron. Hopefully, we'll talk to you in the near future. Yeah, I'd love that.
No, we will definitely. And you have a blessed evening ahead. And uh, as I said, I'll talk to you in the future. Time for us to go for the Isha Azan. And inshallah, we will continue after that with pertinence uh, punctuated.